Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Hello? Oh, got the power. <laughs> I guess everybody's in here. Good. It's a little hot this morning, but... All right. Psalms. Ten. Maybe. Good morning. You guys enjoying your Sunday adventures? Ah, Well, let's pray before we get into the Word. We're going to be in Psalms chapter 10 today. Um, Finish up the acrostic in Psalms. Father, we just lift you up as uh, we get started here. Thank you that uh, you've brought us here to hear your Word and to worship you. I pray that as we uh, have prepared our hearts, that you would speak to us um, in your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, remember a couple weeks ago, well, the last two times I taught, I dealt with Psalms chapter 9, and 9 is uh, in the Septuagint and... uh, the Latin Vulgate are one psalm. Nine and ten are put together. And because the first half of it, well, the first chapter nine is the beginning of an acrostic. At the end of nine, it breaks away from the acrostic and then brings back at the second half of chapter 10, the same acrostic. So every other letter, every other verse in the two chapters is a different Hebrew letter. It starts with a different Hebrew letter. So we don't see that in our English translations, but it's there in, in uh, the original manuscripts. Um, so I think it's very important that you understand the two fit together because they teach um, complementary information. And we're going to bounce back and forth between those two psalms a little bit as we get into this. But let's just deal with chapter 10 um, today. Psalms 10, uh, the first part of, yeah, chapter 9 dealt with the finished work and the delivering work of God. The second half of chapter 9 was a prayer of the suffering. And in chapter 10, he kind of breaks from his focus and starts asking questions about the pride, prideful people and the boasting of the wicked. And then in the second half, he goes back to a hopeful prayer. But verse one says, why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourselves in times of trouble? And, and I think that's a very valid question. You know, we hear that question all the time. Where is God 
when there's evil happening? Where is God when things are difficult? And, and everybody asks that at times. And I think it's very interesting that in the midst of this psalm, he's already said, uh, chapter 9, uh, verse 15 says, The nations have sunk down in the pit in which they've made, in their net which they hid. Uh, their own foot has been caught, and the Lord has made himself known, and he has executed his judgment. So he's already kind of answered the question, where is God? Why is he hiding? Psalms 9 said he's not. He's not hidden. He has made himself known, and he has executed judgment. In the work of his own hands, the wicked is snared. And I, I think that's the key to answering that conundrum. Sometimes God executes his judgment by allowing to sin to play out. And he does that by letting people be caught in their wickedness. And so we look around and we say, why is there such wickedness? Why is there such evil in the world? Why are things so difficult? And I think the answer is right there in front of you. He's allowing it to play out because he has a plan to allow them to be caught in their own schemes. Now, we have to remember that those times of trouble are, are part of God's plan. Second Timothy uh, chapter 3 says, Realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revelers, and it goes on to name a few other things. And isn't that the reality that we're seeing today? Peter, uh, you know, responds similarly, saying that these times are for the testing of our faith. First um, Peter one six says, though, now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proving of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What's the purpose? There, it's two-pronged. The problems that we see in the world are part of the judgment on the world. And secondly, the struggles that we're dealing with are for the proving of our faith. Now, Another question might be asked, would they truly be troubled times if the Lord was near? And we have to ask ourselves the same thing. If we're questioning, where is the Lord? Where is our faith? Do we understand where he is? He's in the midst of the struggle. He meets us in the hard times. 
Matthew Henry explains it this way. We judge by our outward appearance, and we stand afar off from God by our unbelief. And then we complain that God stands afar off from us. And the reality is sin can make us seem really distant from God and seem that God is distant from us. And so the question becomes, how much of the troubles are of our own creation? And how much of it is for our testing of our faith? And those are really important for us to ask individually, each of us, is this God being faithful in my life so he can work out my faith in him? Or is there sin in my life that's keeping me feeling distant from God? Verse 2. In pride, the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. Interesting, Spurgeon says, pride is the egg of persecution. And I think that this is probably what's going on here. In pride, the wicked pursue the afflicted. Because they think they have rights over you. Interestingly, this translates, uh, there's some translation issue in this verse. One translation reads, let them be caught. And the other says, they are caught. They are caught in the plots which they have devised. Which would agree with chapter 9. Um, we read a second ago. Uh, and it's not wrong for us to have that prayer. Let them be caught in the evil that they're doing. But the real issue, the reason we really want them to be caught in their evil is to bring them to humility. Because that's where we all meet the Lord when we come before him in humility. And it should be your prayer for all the world that it come to humility, that it be caught in its wickedness, and it be broken before the Lord. Verse 8. That's not right. Verse 3. <laughs> We're moving real fast. <laughs> Verse 3. Um for the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. The greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked in haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there's no God. I think it's interesting. You can note a contrast here. Uh, if you go back to chapter 9, uh, verse 10, um, those who know the name will put their trust in, in you. And the Lord has not forsaken or for those who seek you. What's the problem? Those who seek are not forsaken, but here 
The pride keeps the people from seeking. Ultimately keeping them from finding the truth. Leaving them in condemnation. And that's the reality. Pride puts us up. It, it, it teaches us to deny ourselves. And to deny all other things that are against us. It robs us of knowledge. It blinds us to truth. It leaves us stagnant. Denying even God. It starts with greed. They're unthankful. They're greedy men. Cursing and spurning the Lord. And the reality is that's our fallen nature. Philippians um, 3.18 says, Paul grieved over these people, says, Many walk, of whom I often told you, and now even tell you weeping. They're enemies of the cross, whose end is destruction, and whose God is their appetite, that is, their selfish desires whose glory is in their shame and who set their minds on earthly things. All his thoughts are set on denying God. Here in a little bit, in a couple chapters, David will say, the fool says in his heart that there's no God. Verse 5, his ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his adversities, he snorts at them. He says to himself, I'll not be moved. Throughout all generations, I'll not be in adversity. The prosperity of the wicked seems unending in their mind. They think, oh, it's always going to be good for me because it is good. And the reality is that's the stumbling block. He allows them to prosper so that their destruction is greater, their fall is further. It feeds that self-centered mind and it binds them to oppression and opposition to God. The reality is these guys have no concept of judgment or accountability. But every thought in their mind is a lie. We can see the same thing played out in Revelation. Um, right before the fall of Babylon. It says, uh, Revelation chapter 18 says, She sits in her, she says in her heart, I sit as a queen and I will not be a widow. I'll never see mourning. For this reason, in one day her plagues will come, pestilence, mourning, famine. She'll be burnt up with fire, for the Lord God who judges her is strong. In one day, all of it's destroyed because of pride. Verse 7, his mouth is full of cursing and deceit, Oppression and under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. I think it's interesting these three things are an interesting progression. It starts with cursing or speaking evil of people. 
um, swearing, making oaths. It's interesting um, when right before Peter got uh, Paul got sent out of um, um, he was arrested in in Jerusalem, and all the Pharisees tried to uh, attack him. First, they they cursed him, and they attacked him, and they said all kinds of evil things. And then the second step, deceit or treachery, that's telling lies, trying to lead others to believe the lie. And same thing with those guys. They start talking to, um, to the leaders and, and like tried to convince them uh, to, to move his court case into Jerusalem so they could kill him. Uh, and, and then the third problem is oppression putting others down, intimidating them. And that's what they did to, to the government. They tried to say, hey, you guys need to listen to us because we're, we're officials too. And we'll, you know, as, as the ruling power in Israel, you know, we'll, we'll make it hard for you. And, and, and they try to put people in submission. And we see the same thing kind of playing out with uh, some of the, the Antifa movement. They curse you. They try to tell you a deceitful story. And ultimately, if you don't agree, you're just put in, they just oppose you and put you down and intimidate you. It's the same, same game. Interestingly, this phrase, under their tongue, uh, is, is not just... It, it has something to do with flavor. The idea is they have an appetite for mischief and wickedness. That's, that's something they enjoy. Unfortunately, Romans 3 uses this verse um, to say that, that all humanity under, under the law is under this. They're all like this. He says, are we better than them? Not at all. We've already charged the Jews and Greeks are all under sin. They're under the control of sin. The appetite is wrong. And that's the problem. We can have an appetite for mischief and wickedness and evil, or we can have an appetite for the things of the Lord. And that's what the Spirit has to do for you. He wants to change your appetite for good things as opposed to evil. Verse 8, he sinks in the lurking places. He sits in the lurking places of the villages and hiding places. He kills the innocents. His eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. He lurks in the hiding places as a lion in his lair. He lurks to catch the afflicted and catches the afflicted when he draws him into his net. Where's their focus? They're looking for an opportunity to take advantage of the unfortunate. There's, there's an, an attempt to draw the unfortunate into their own nets. And who is it that's, that they're drawing and captivating? 
It's the afflicted and the struggling. And reality is that when we are afflicted, when we're struggling, that's when we're under more attack. That's when they want to catch you. It's, it's intentional. First Peter 5 says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. It's not different for you. People all over the world are struggling. Your struggle is normal. And it's okay. You need to resist all of that. Colossians says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit according to traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. How do we do that? Colossians 2, 6, and 7 answer it right before. As you have received Jesus the Lord, so walk in him having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him, established in your faith, just as you were instructed. Oh yeah, and overflowing in gratitude. What's the problem before? Pride and greed. The answer is humble gratitude. The wicked is filled with greed and pride. We are to be those as opposite, filled with humility and gratitude to the Lord. Second Peter 3 says, Be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness but rather grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus and Savior. We need to grow in grace. Back to these other guys. Verse 10, he crouches, he bows down, bows down. The unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He's hidden his face. He'll never see it. Interesting, the RSV uh, reads a little different. It reads, the helpless is crushed. He sinks down and falls by his might. That is the might of the pride, of, of the proud. So it actually, depending on how you read it, the wicked in anticipation of, of an attack are hiding from God and denying his justice, or the unfortunate are crushed and collapse at the attack of the wicked in despair because they don't have faith. They're not trusting God. They're unfortunate. 
God does see and he does remember. They're not forgotten. You're not forgotten. Chapter 9 already told us that. He will not forget. And he will hold them accountable. Verse 12 returns to the acrostic. It's interesting. Sometimes we get in that moment where we're, you know, focused and structured. And then we get distracted by the world. And I feel like that's kind of what happened here with David. He's, he's, he's doing this acrostic and then he gets into this, man, the evil is so bad around here. And, and he just gets distracted. But what's interesting is he comes back. And he comes back almost to the same thought that he left in chapter 9. Verse 12 says, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand and don't forget the afflicted. Chapter 9, in the end of chapter 9, verse 19 and 20 says, Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. The heart of prayer is exactly this. Let God arise and let his enemies be scattered. Lord, defend the wicked, or defend the, uh, the needy, and scatter the wicked. We want God to reveal himself in righteousness, in holiness, in mercy. Verse 13, why is the wicked spurned God? He said to himself, you won't require it. You have seen it, for you have beheld the mischief of and the vexation to take it into your hand. The unfortunate commits himself to you. You have been the helper of the orphan. So David turns from his questioning, his struggle with the wicked, and he refocuses with trust in God. And that's how we need to respond to our own struggles. Come back to the focus on God instead of focusing on the world. Because it's real easy to get distracted. He says, the thinking of these wicked people is nonsense. He's going to balance it out. The fact remains, we don't face the struggle alone. As we struggle, we commit ourselves to him and to his promise and providence. He is in control. We understand his character is faithful and he is not going to forget. So David continues his prayer. Verse 15, break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Seek out his wicked, his wickedness, until you find no more. He doesn't say to kill them. You ever thought about that? 
God doesn't call, or David doesn't call for their death. He calls for their arms to be broken. Why? Similar situation in Daniel. Their chapter 7, it says their dominion and power is taken away, but their lives are spared. Why? To give them an opportunity to repent. It's remove them from the power that they have so they can no longer do evil. But allow them an opportunity to repent. Ultimately, our desire is to see the wicked completely removed. Seek it out, Lord. Find it. Address it. And remove it. And that's all of our desire is the church. Verse 16. The Lord is king forever and ever, and nations have perished from his land. I, I think this is really an interesting point. If you go back to chapter 9, the end of it says, Rise, O Lord. Don't let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before thee. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Here he says, the Lord is king forever and ever. The nations have perished from his land. You see this contrast? At the end of 9, nations still exist. At the end of 10, it's God's land and the nations don't exist anymore. There are no nationalities. There are no distinctions between men. They're all under one ruler, one king, one God. And that's the vision that we have for this world. That is the promise that he is returning to be king forever, to rule this world. And in God's kingdom, there's no nation, no races. We're one people under God. We're but men. Verse 17, O Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart and will incline your ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. God does hear our cries and our prayers and he understands our desires. He doesn't forget and he will act, but it's in his timing and in his way. In the meantime, we have this promise. Not just the promise here, but we have the promise of the Holy Spirit to strengthen us, to come alongside of us, to encourage us in the midst of the struggle. to seal us trusting what he's doing 
is perfect. We have to be careful that our longing for him doesn't fall into depression. As we see the evil around us, as we see the struggles, we're not called to a life of anxiety and depression and worry. We're called to faith. We're called to anticipate his arrival. And that's a celebration. That changes your morning to joy. It changes your anxiety to peace. Because he's faithful. And we can trust that. Man who is of the earth is fallen. The cause of all kinds of terror and evil. But we're not of the earth anymore. We are called to the kingdom of heaven. And as new creations in Jesus, we're no longer of this world. We are seated in heaven to be resurrected with Christ, bearing his image to all the world around us. Commission to proclaim a gospel of peace. We're not to be a terror anymore. The church is to be a blessing. And that's the difference between the world and the church. The world is a terror. It's fallen, it's evil, and it's producing death. And we are no longer of the world. If you've been called by God, abide in him, be faithful to live out his image to the world around you, that you might be a blessing. Father, we lift you up. Thank you that you've called us to something greater than is in this world. You've promised us peace. You've promised us a filling of your spirit. You've promised us an understanding that goes beyond all comprehension. Lord, Make us people of faith, trusting you, filled with the joy that you've promised. When you said, your kingdom is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. We pray that we would have that abundantly today. Thank you for all you have done and all you have in store for each of us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right.